and it didn't take long for us to realize that we could present ourselves with a little editorial discretion. <clears throat> um, David, his children in the museum, not only did our ancestors try to hide their insecurities, but they also hid their true facial features. For instance, the puckered lips on Rembrandt's 1640 self-portrait could be the world's first documented duck face. If you could have followed Frida Kahlo on Instagram, you would have become well acquainted with the face. No time to pluck the eyebrows, Frida would have needed a weed whacker. Vincent van Gogh, lend me your ear. He produced over 40 self-portraits in the span of three years and never a hint of a smile. The most unhappy man I've ever seen. With the emerging world of photography in the 19th century, selfies became more popular than ever before. Which brings us to modern day. You may no longer have to deal with the hassles of traditional media, but there's nothing new about taking a selfie.
Last week we also learned that Jacob had returned to that place because he had built an altar there and he called it Bethel. He returned to that place later on in life when he was in a needy place and he needed God and said, God, you met me here before, you meet me here again. And we talked about building altars and how important it is to have those places in our life where we have altars that we can come back to and say, God, you've met me here and I need you to meet me here again. And we know from earlier sermons, too, that Jacob was a child of promise. Even though he was a younger brother, and traditionally in that culture, the older brother was the one who got all the best of everything, got the best inheritance, he got the best blessing, got the best of everything. God promised that even before Jacob was born, that Jacob was going to be the one to carry on the family name and have the greatest blessing, and he was the one through whose God's salvation plan would be carried out, even though he was younger. We also know, in spite of all these things, too, that, that Jacob had some character issues. He was known for lying, for cheating. And it caused some major problems in his life. In fact, right when he should have been mourning his, his father's death and been rejoicing in all the great things that, that were happening to him because he got the blessing and he got the property and the sab and all the good things were happening, instead of being there and, and being involved in that, he found him running for his life. Because he had cheated and he had lied his way into the things that he had. Instead of rejoicing or mourning, he was running. You know, in this, story, in this week's story about Jacob, we're going to see a lot of things coming to a head about this cheating and the lying and all the things that were going on and the consequences that it caused. You know, as I was reviewing this story again, and I've heard it ever since my childhood, but as I was reviewing it again, I realized that modern reality shows have nothing on the life of Jacob. And this week's story really, really takes the cake because it, it's, it's full of intrigue and lying and cheating and, and one woman trying to, to, to make sure that she's better than the other woman and all the ways that she does it. It's, it's just crazy. So, so in my own mind, I, I had a great friend this week tell me that their guilty pleasure is watching the Housewives in New Jersey. What I would say is move over Housewives in New Jersey because Jacob and his family are in the house. And we're calling this week's sermon Sister Wives. At this point where I'm getting ready to read the scripture, Jacob is 76 years old. He's on the run. He's homeless. He has no wife. He has no kids. Now, I will warn you that as we read the story this week, and actually we're going to continue into next week as well, we can't look at this story through modern lenses. But there's still some things that we can apply, even though some of the cultural norms have definitely, definitely shifted, and we can't necessarily relate to those. But there's lessons that we have for today, and so I've subtitled this sermon, Unexpected Lessons. We're going to be reading from Genesis 29. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there, whether they be on paper or on your phone or however. We'll be reading this, and I'll be reading from the NIV. As we start the story, we see that Jacob had been was on the run, and he had been instructed by his mother to go to her homeland so that he would find a place of, of safety and a, place, a home place where he could land uh, while he was waiting for things to cool down with his brother Esau. Genesis 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well, with, well in the open country, with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from the well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. One version I read it said the stone was huge. It was a massive stone. It was not a tiny stone. And it was important that it be a huge one because water was very important in that desert country and people protected their water sources and they had the stone over the water sources so they wouldn't get contaminated or stolen or things like that. And, and people had treaties and wars and family feuds over wells. Wells were very important things. 
when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the huge stone away from the well's mouth and, the wa and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel. Look, now, now Jacob, one thing we learned about him through the course of the stories is he's kind of a bossy guy. He likes to tell people what to do. He even likes to tell God what to do sometimes. And here he is meeting these total strangers out in the middle of the desert by a well, and he's even trying to help, tell them how to run their business. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to gather. Water the sheep and then take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all of the flocks are gathered and the huge stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well I had it to eat. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came down uh, with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob sold Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the huge stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. He, 76-year-old Jacob, became the Incredible Hulk and took the huge stone and rolled it all the way by himself. Oh, all these guys weren't willing to roll it over when there was only three of them. They had to wait for the group, but no, Jacob sees a gorgeous gal, and suddenly the huge stone becomes no obstacle for him. Now, I'm, I'm going to take just a little break here because it reminds me of when we were first married. And uh, and uh, my husband, you know, when, when you're, you're married and have a wife, sometimes they'll, they'll give you a little helpful hints like, honey, do you think you need to get some rest or you need to eat some healthier food? Or, or you're, you're a little sick right now. Are you sure you need to go into work? And, and, you know, honestly, men, you should be grateful for this because the statistics show that married men do live longer than unmarried men because they have these people in their lives trying to help them with these things. But, but my husband, big, strong husband that he is, he would say, Melanie, you don't need to worry about it. I am indestructible man. <laughs> so that's, I thought of that when I read this passage of scripture, because here I'm seeing 76-year-old Jacob rolling the big stone to impress the girl. He is indestructible man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Okay, this is a different culture. That's what they did when they greeted people back in those days. Young people don't get any ideas. You don't need to kiss the girl as soon as you meet her, okay? <laughs> he told Rachel that he was a relative of her father's and son of Rebecca. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and he kissed him. Here goes that kissing again. And brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all of these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a, while, for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, we don't know what the weak eyes meant. There's been a lot of guesses about it, but we don't really know what they meant. But, you know, I would imagine if the writer was writing this today, the writer would say, Leah had a great personality. <laughs> that was Leah. 
Laban said, okay, we got to a different culture again here, but this lesson still holds. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served for seven years to get Rachel. Okay, this is the big law of scripture, so I need you all to help me out here, okay? <laughs> Most romantic scripture in the Bible. But they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh. Precious. <laughs> then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is complete and I want to make love to her. So Here, but it says, so you wanted a job, babe. 
laden with posers. And last but not least, we see Leah posing as Rachel on her wedding night. Out to get her man. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of posing, you know, going on in the Jacob story. And you know, we often present pictures to the world that aren't true. Selfies are typically us doing fun things with fun people, making beautiful faces, our makeup immaculately put in place with healthy, heavy filters, and we're living the dream. I saw this picture on Facebook this week. Actually, there's a whole video that goes with it. It's worth looking. It's worth looking at because this picture is just uh, the, the video is absolutely hilarious because the commentators keep looking at these girls throughout the baseball game, and every time they look at them, they're taking different pictures of themselves. Sometimes with churro, sometimes with a hot dog, sometimes with makeup, sometimes with bread, sometimes with love. They're the whole ball game. They're you know taking selfies. We present ourselves to the world through our selfies. But how many of you all know that life is not always like what is presented in the selfies with the heavy filters, living the dream, always doing something fun? And, you know, one of the mistakes we as human beings make is we find ourselves comparing our real selves with other people's, fil people's filtered selfies. So they have all these beautiful pictures and they look perfect and everything is all good. And you think, oh, our life is not like that. We're not as perfect or as beautiful all the time. And our makeup is not as always perfectly in place and every hair is not in place. And we feel like a failure because we don't measure up to the projected world that we see all around us. And these selfies that people are putting out on social media and in the workplace and all the different places that we go. Which leads me to my first point. Selfies don't always represent authenticity. You need to fill in on your notes. And while it can be dangerous as we compare ourselves to others and we feel bad because we don't look like others, I think even more dangerous is when we begin to believe our own selfies. When we begin to, begin to fool ourselves. And we begin to believe the lie that we projected out to the world. And worse yet, I think it's really difficult when we believe that we fooled God. Selfies don't always represent authenticity. Sometimes they represent a polished world. And life is not polished. And we are not polished. And if we don't begin to look at ourselves authentically, then we find ourselves in really big trouble. As you look at the life of Jacob, you see that Jacob was on the uh, run from, uh, for, for his life from Esau. Leah was stuck in a very unhappy marriage as an unloved woman. In later stories in the scripture, we find out that Laban was miserable because his family wanted to get away from him so badly that they snuck away in the middle of the night. They took his wives, uh, his children, they took his grandchildren with them, they took away his family treasure, they even took away some of his flocks and were sneaking away to get away from him. There is only so much that posing can help cover up. You eventually have to deal authentically with your life. Selfies don't always represent authenticity. I highly recommend today that you consider don't spending your life miserably posing as someone you're not or wishing that you were them. Because what I would say as a word of warning today is that sin has a payday. Sin has a payday. In this story, we see a powerful example of Jacob. He was known as a liar and a cheat. In fact, his name is a steel catcher because he's always trying to grab onto those things that are not his. In this story, we find out that Jacob, the liar and the cheat, was lied on, he was cheated on, and it was kind of what goes around comes around moment. And that sin had a payday, and the things that he had not dealt with in his own life came back around to haunt him and came back around to grab him. 
And just a little side note here about Mr. Lincoln. He came and greeted him, gave him the big hugs, the big kisses, all the, hey, what you want? How can I help you out? But you know what? Everything, everybody that is good to you, let me say this, is not good toward you. There are people that are that will embrace you and they will smile and will laugh and they will say, come join my party, but they're not good for you. And they will, they will draw you in with the great line, they will draw you away from the path that God has for you, the path that you know that you should be on, and they will entice you with great and amazing words, but they're not good for you. And probably you should be avoiding them. Just a little side note about Reagan there. But you know, one of the scariest scriptures in the Bible to me, and it may not sound scary at first, but I really have taken it to heart many times in my life, is Matthew 23, 12. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I preach this, self, this message to myself a whole lot, and here's the way I word it. Mel, you need to humble yourself, or you're going to be humbled. And me, I'm not really big. I don't know about you all, but I'm not really big on public humiliation. I'd rather God take me privately and help me deal with some of my stuff and the junk in my life than, than find myself humble in a very massive way like, like Jacob did at this wedding feast where he finds himself in bed with the wrong woman because he'd been tricked and he'd been, he'd been lied to because he was a trickster and a liar and, and, and it was coming back to him and it had a payday for him. And we need to take time and we need to humble ourselves so that we won't be humble. But as I was thinking about this lesson yesterday and, and, and the sermon yesterday, I'm thinking through I thought, well, the, the, the first one reflects a little bit more about Jacob and about his life and, 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 and that he needs to show authenticity. But for me, these, this point, the next one, reflects a little bit more about God. And lessons that we learn from this lesson are lessons about God. You see, when we sin, God will not, will, he will allow sins to catch up with us. He'll allow the consequences of our lives to catch up with us. It's not his desire. He doesn't want that to happen. But it's a law of sowing and reaping. Yes, we're, we're heading toward an eternal reward, heaven or hell, but sometimes we have to deal with the consequences of our life here on earth. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced that from time to time. And it's not fun. You know, back when we were, I was first starting my career and I was in and the graduate school and I had to do an internship, one of the things I did was I was sent to a little church out in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, called Elizabeth. And it was a small congregation in a small town, but they were doing a powerful work. And one of my tasks was to start a social service ministry out there um, in, that, in that church. And so we would look around the community and say, what are some of the problems here? Well, this, this town had a major problem. And the problem was that there were, well, it started out with there being no police around. There was only one police officer for the entire county, and he was 30 miles away. Well, Elizabeth was a great little farming community, and they had special things that they could farm there without ever being caught because there was no police around <laughs> to catch them growing their special things. And so it became quite a haven for uh, drug dealing. And people would actually come from the city of Louisville 30 miles away on the weekends. You'd find the city crowded, well, a little town crowded with people double the size because people were there buying their special stuff um, with, with no limits. It finally got so bad that, that they swooped in and they arrested the major drug dealer. And while he was waiting for his trial, he found a powerful encounter with God in the little church that I was ministering in as a social service minister. And God really changed his life and made a big difference. And it was a, it was a witness to the entire community. It was awesome. It was special. And when it was time for him to go to trial, we all banded together. We all prayed. We prayed that God would allow him to 
able to escape to jail because he made such a, a powerful change in his life and was such a witness. But you know what? Despite the fact that he had changed his life and made such a difference, he was required to pay the consequences for those uh, crimes and he had to go to jail. Now the amazing part of that story is we heard from him for years afterwards and he took the little recovery programs that we had developed in church. We had developed some recovery programs as a result of seeing the need for the town. And, and there was some drug and alcohol programs. And we established those beautifully. And he was helping us to head those. He took all that material that we had, we had established in the church. And he took it to the jail with him. And he started a recovery ministry there in the jail. And he was ministering to people. And God was doing amazing things in his life. And God continued to work through him. But sometimes here on earth, we still have to pay the consequences of our sin. Even after we've come to faith, you can see that happening. You know, when we were little, we used timeouts a lot. We used swaps from time to time, and, but we, we did use a lot of timeouts. And, 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 you know, I would say to my kids, I would give my kids a lot of choices, you know, because you read the books, and they say it's really good to give your kids choices because they need to learn that there's choices in life. So I would give my kids choices, and I would say, you can either obey me or you can suffer the consequences. Those were the choices they had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever, the, whatever the obedience of the day would be. And so we use that word consequences. They were little, we would use that word consequences because I really wanted my kids to know that there are things that you do that will bring good, good things to you, and there are things that we'll do that will bring bad things to you. And, and it became so ingrained in the verbiage of our house that, that my little daughter, Natalie, she couldn't say her S's very clearly. I would hear her at three years old, and she would, she would lecture her friends or her siblings, and she would say, That's the consequences. <laughs> and she liked to say that, but, but it's important to understand that from very early on. And, you know, I will admit, it was really hard as a parent for me to give those consequences. It took a lot of time. It took a lot of energy. And, you know, you know, I was just kind of like feeling like Rodney King, who was well-known back in the day. And I just want to say, can't we all just get along? I don't want to give these consequences. But I realized that as a parent, I had to do those things because I needed to save my kids from having to learn harder lessons later on when they had to learn that life is full of consequences. Right. And it was really challenging. And you know, the Bible says that if God, our Heavenly Father, loves us so much that our love for our children is almost like hate compared to his love for us. That's how different his love for us is. It's so much bigger that our love for our kids is like, hey, we don't do anything for our kids. And so I know if it pained me to give my children consequences for their behavior, how much more does it, does it hurt God when, when he has to step aside to allow us to live with the consequences of our behavior? And I know it pains God. But he has to do that because it helps us to learn and it helps us to grow and it helps us to get on track. You know, sometimes in our era of grace, and I, I celebrate grace, and it's made such a difference in my life that I need it every single day. But we don't like to deal in this grace day with scriptures like the wages of sin is death. That's pretty harsh. Or the scripture that says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Jacob, God cannot be mocked. You're going to reap what you sow, Jacob. That's a harsh reality, and it doesn't sound good and tolerant in our modern years. And in our modern years, but we don't get to make the rules. We just have to live by them. And sin does have payday. You know, there's an old story. Some of you all have may have heard it. It was of a man who um, had in his employee a builder, and uh, the builder had worked for him for many years, and he was getting ready to retire. And so the, the employer said, there's a very last thing that you're doing for me. I really want you to build this one final house. I'm going to give you the specs for it. 
and the specs were amazing. It was a beautiful house. It had all the right trinkets and toys that every modern, awesome house would have, and it was very, very detailed. And he said, please build this for me. So the builder got to building it. The longer he got into the project, it was just going to be a hassle. There was just too many details, too many things to cover. And so he started cutting a little corner here, and then a little corner here, a little corner here. And it all looked really, really good. But underneath, things weren't quite right because he cut some corners. Some of you are probably guessing the end of my story here. I hear your, I see your head's nodding. So the, bill, uh, so the employer comes to the builder at the end and says, thank you so much for all of your years of service and thank you for all that you've done for me. And as I thank you for all that you've done for me over the years, I'm going to give you this house. It is yours. <laughs> sometimes God allows us to live in the house that we have built. And sometimes we wish we hadn't cut the corners and then we hadn't done those things that maybe weren't quite right. You know, I would say like Jacob, we may find ourselves from time to time reaping the consequences of our sinfulness. And some of you need to hear this part of the message today. Sin does have a payday. And maybe you need to take some time today to make things right with God and to make, whenever possible, things right with people around you who have been hurt by your sins. Sin has a payday. You can't avoid it. You can't charm your way around it. You can't live long enough that it's all going to go away. There comes a time when you have to deal with God and you have to deal with people around you because sin does have a payday. But the next point I'd like to make is that God is relentless. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I'll use kind of a modern example. If I were to use a subtitle for this particular point, I would say that God is like Siri. How many of you all have an iPhone or a GPS that you use or some other kind of smartphone that has these directions on it? It's a very cool thing. It has saved my life a lot of wondering because I use my iPhone, and it's really cool. I can just push this button right here, and I can tell Siri all kind of things. I can ask her questions. In fact, sometimes at the dinner table when we first got Siri, we would just sit down and we would say, Hey, Siri, we asked her all these questions, and she would give you sometimes straight-up answers. Sometimes she was funny. She was smart-alecky. She was all kind of things. Siri is a fun character. It's on your iPhone if you have an iPhone. And, but one of my favorite things to do with Siri is to say, hey, Siri, I need directions. And I'll give Siri the directions. And Siri will begin to route me from where I am to home. In fact, I've got my home address in here. So I don't even have to put my address in here anymore. I'll just say, hey, Siri, take me home. And she'll start giving me voice directions, which is nice. So I don't have to look down. I can hear her just talking to me and walking me through the process of getting home from wherever I am. You know, one of the things that's really good about Siri, but also can be very irritating. Now, I'll admit to you, I'm hopelessly lost, even with directions, I get lost. Siri can tell me where to go, and I can still take the wrong turn and get lost. It's just, I always hoped it would change, and I would mature out of it, but I'm nearly 48 years old, and I don't think I'm going to mature out of it. I'm just going to keep wandering around, even with the GPS, I wander. So, uh, those of you who don't do that, great for you. <laughs> That's not me. And so sometimes I find myself, I get to a fork in the road, and I think Siri needs to take this way, and instead I'm supposed to take this way, and so I go. And what does Siri do? She'll say, make a U-turn. And I'll go three more feet, and she'll say, make a U-turn. And I know that her voice probably stays the same, but in my mind it's getting louder and more irritating all the time because she keeps saying, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. And if I, if I ignore her and if I don't make that U-turn that she's insisting I take, Eventually, she'll give me a new message. She'll say, rerouting. And 
so she'll try to find a whole new path for me to take because I've gone past the point of all the U-turns that I could have made, and now I'm having to be completely rerouted. But one of the interesting things about Siri, no matter how far out of my way I go, if I put that destination in, and my destination is home or wherever else, whatever I put in there, she's going to keep trying to reroute me to get to meet my home. Now, I've never actually experimented with this at all, but I think if I kept this thing plugged in, and I started driving toward home from the church, and I ended up landing in New York City because I had gone way out of my way. Siri would still be saying, make a U-turn, rerouting, rerouting, and she would still try to get me back home again because that's what I had asked her to do because she doesn't lose track of where we're supposed to be heading, and she's always going to try to work to get me there. God is like Siri. He's always going to try to work to help you get to your destination. He hasn't changed his mind about the destination or where you're supposed to go or what, your, what his plan is for your life. His plan for your life remains solid, and even if you make lots of wrong turns, and even if you go the wrong direction, completely the wrong direction, you end up somewhere so far away, and you cause yourself so much hassle because you've gone so far off track. His destination for you and for your life remains the same. And Jacob learned that in his life. You see, in this story, we find Jacob in a foreign land. He's living with the consequences of his sin. But before he was born, God declared that he would carry on his father's line. And he was a child of promise. Jacob and his mom felt like they needed to help God out. And they cheated. And they lied. They took some wrong turns. They took some wrong turns along the way. But let me ask you this question. Do you think if Jacob had not cheated and he had not lied and they had not come up with all of this big family drama that God still could have performed the purposes of his life? Sure, they could have. But God even used those negative things that happened, those bad turns that he made in his life, to accomplish his purpose. Because God is not going to change the purpose for your life. And he's not, he didn't change the purpose for, for, for Jacob's life. In fact, when Jacob found himself on the run and we saw the beautiful story displayed out here last week with all the props, and we saw Jacob lying his head on the pillow, God gave him a vision that night. And this is what God said to Jacob in the vision. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, and to the east, to the north, and to the south. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised in you. That was God's promise to Jacob. After he had lied, after he had cheated, after he was on the run for his life, God knew that he was going to make lots and lots more mistakes. As we see here in this story, he made even more mistakes. But God yet he kept that promise. And, and when we read the Bible now, we hear lots of phrases throughout the course of the Bible saying, God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and God kept his promise because he said, I am going to bring salvation through you and through your line and through your descendants, and I will not give up on this promise. And just like God will not give up on Jacob's promise, God is not going to give up on the promises for your life. What are the promises for your life? God has lots of promises, some for you as individuals, but, but, but as a general, he said he's not willing that any should perish. In other words, he wants, he wants them everything he can to get you into heaven with him. He doesn't want you to perish. That's not his desire. So he's going to keep rerouting you, keep bringing you on U-turns because his plan for you is for you not to perish. He also says in Jeremiah that he has plans not to harm you, but to give you hope and to give you a future. God has those plans for your life. And those aren't going to change. You no know, matter how many wrong turns you make in your life and how many times God has to reroute you, that plan is solid. And it's in place. 
is for you today. What we learned from the life of Jacob is it doesn't matter how much you've messed up, how far you've gone off the path, that God has a plan for you, and he will not relent. He's not going to give up. He's going to keep that, and he's going to keep at it, and sometimes it's going to even irritate you when you hear his voice in the background saying, you need to make a U-turn, you need to make a U-turn, but God's not going to relent. Because God promises another scripture that I absolutely love is that his gifts and his callings are without repentance. That means no takebacks. When he called your life, when he gave you gifts in your life, he's not going to take them back. He's given without repentance, and so you are going to be to be able to keep on that, and God's going to keep trying to direct your life so that you can take advantage of those things, and so that you can be part of his plan, because he's got a plan that he wants to be with you in heaven someday, and he wants to lead and guide you here on earth. You know, as I was reflecting on this, as I was finishing up my notes this week, it occurred to me that God cares very deeply about our journey and the path that we're on. In fact, he's given us his word. He's given us the Bible to tell us how to live. So that we can have a journey that more closely follows one that we were created for. So that we don't have to make so many turns. And we don't have to be rerouted so often. And he cares very, very deeply about your journey. And wants to do the best he can to kind of keep you on the right route. But ultimately, more important than a journey, God is the God of the destination. He's the God of the plan for your life. He wants you to be with him. He wants you to reach that final destination. He's going to do everything he can. He will not relent. He will not relent. He will not relent. He will not relent. Until you live. Because that's the kind of God we serve. He's the God of the destination. 